0: Welcome to Voices of Baltimore. My name is Zion Chambers, and I am a strength ambassador here at Mission Fit. We're creating a platform for discussion, for the youth, by the youth, to tell our stories. We are people from Baltimore. We understand Baltimore. Everyone hears the ugly, but here we're gonna dive into the truth, raw and uncut. To talk about it all, Baltimore in its entirety and strengthen, uplift, and unite the voices of our community. We hope you join the discussion. Thank you. and I am a strength ambassador at Mission Fit.
1: Hey there, this is Wes Jamison, director of development here at Mission Fit. Hello everyone, my name is
2: Corey Harris and I'm also a strength ambassador with Mission Fit. And who are we here with today?
3: Uh, My name is Diego Thompson and I'm a rising senior at Johns Hopkins.
2: Okay, so Mr. Diego, you just told us you was a rising senior Diego Thompson. You go to Johns Hopkins, how old are you? I'm 21. 21 years old, okay. And, yeah, um, so, what made you pick the school, Johns Hopkins?
3: Um, I was, uh, looking for, I think, a school that had a balance of academics and basketball. I had a few offers from some other, like, uh, D2 schools, but they didn't really meet, like, my personal standards academically. And then once I found out that if I got through the, in through the Baltimore Scholars Program, that I could go for free and also play basketball at Hopkins, that kind of, like, helped me with my decision.
0: Okay. Why did you choose to play basketball at Johns Hopkins?
3: Um, I think that's kind of like what my passion was. Um, when I was coming in, just like I was really basketball oriented, but I also like uh, took school seriously. Um, and the program was doing well uh, before I came in, and you know the coach kind of said that with the people that were coming in alongside me, we had an opportunity to be really good. Um, and you know, I I did a few runs with the guys, um, on my visit and I liked it. So that's kind of, uh, what helped me make that decision.
2: Okay. Since you picked uh, basketball, so how was it like on a basketball team at Johns Hopkins and like one of like many of, it's not many, uh, black people at Johns Hopkins, is it?
3: Mm -mm. Um, so when I, uh, came in to the program, I came in alongside, uh, two other black, student athletes on the team, uh, my friend Ethan and my friend uh, Chid, um, who and we're, we're all rising seniors at this point. Um, and when it came, it was, it was interesting, dynamic, you know, we kind of understood, at least from my, Ethan, who was my roommate, he's been my roommate for, for uh, three years now. Okay. We kind of felt like socially we were a little different from everyone else, but we all understood that when it came to basketball, we all kind of clicked. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we found our little like spot socially, kind of just like sticking to ourselves and stuff and then hanging out with the guys uh, on occasion. Um, But everyone was nice to each other. It wasn't, like, really any problems. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that kind of helped because we could be ourselves and kind of just focus on basketball, and then outside of that just do what we wanted to do.
2: So when you uh, said you guys, like, you said it was only three Mm -hmm. black guys on the team at the time. Mm -hmm. So when you had first started, how was it starting off, like, as a freshman?
3: Uh, Well, I came – I was here, obviously, over the summer because I live here. And when I was working out with them, uh, like being the only black person there was interesting, just because you know there's a cultural, um, there's a cultural like difference that is hard like to get past uh, when you are like interacting with, with players and stuff. Because you know you can you can you can interact um, in a positive way regardless of whatever the culture difference is, except like you might just feel a little um, isolated in some things when you're uh, having discussions with them. Or, like, they might crack a joke that you don't understand because they know each other and stuff. Like, they have experiences that you just don't have with them yet. Um, so, like, being there in the summer before even like getting to really meet them was interesting. Um, and also, like, they're none of them are from Baltimore either. So, they don't really have an understanding of what it's like to be from the city and be from, from Baltimore. So, that's another thing that I think um, was interesting. But when I came in, having my teammates, my two teammates, uh, with me help because. On the campus in general, we felt like we didn't really fit in being black because there's just so little of us. So I think like having a team where we felt like we could belong helped out with that transition. Because I'm coming from a city, which is like 70-80% black. And then I go to Hopkins and it's like 10% black. And the majority of them uh, are not African-American, or African. So there's a cultural difference there too. So um, there's also that, not divide, but also like there's obviously solidarity among all of us we might not always feel like we fit in just because we don't have necessarily um an african country that we can call to and and, uh, relate to on a cultural basis
2: all right okay thank you
0: very interesting um as baltimoreans we're very unique in our culture Mm -hmm. um we do different things um we you know we talk differently we 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 live differently and we uh we view things differently as well because of our (coughs) Cultural, you know, background and things that I mentioned where we're from. Um, how does it feel being the only Baltimoreans on the, on the basketball team?
3: Um, it's interesting. Uh, I think. Um, I think like it, it's it's not it hasn't really been hard per se. It's more so like it's just been isolating. I feel like in a in a, like on occasion because there's stuff that happens outside the gym that they don't have like any idea about. And there's not really, like, people I can go and, like, talk to on campus about that stuff that they can, like, truly understand, like, relate to it, per se. So, um, and then, you know, like, there's a stigma that's associated with being from Baltimore sometimes because of... The media, because all the people that aren't from Baltimore, all they're getting is, like, the negative stuff on TV. So when they, they bring those, like, kind of ideas here and when they meet you and stuff, they might reflect those negative associations on you, too. So then your interactions, all they talk about, about Baltimore is negative stuff. So you got to have, like, kind of put in the work to kind of correct that and stuff with them. Um, and being the only black student athlete who's from Baltimore, you feel like I'm connected to my student athletes because, like, we're all black. But then sometimes some conversations you might not feel like you can reach people because they don't have that perspective about the city. And some of those issues just are so unique to us that you might not be able to feel like you can have like a true conversation and feel like you're heard or like they truly understand what you're trying to say.
2: Okay, thank you for that. So the B.S.A.A. Mm -hmm. What does this stand for?
3: Uh, that stands for Black Student Athlete Association.
2: Okay, can you like tell us just a little bit more about like, what is it? Like, why did you guys mm-hmm. like, make it and things like
3: that? Mm-hmm. So the Black Student Athlete Association is a like student-led organization. Um, uh, and we created it um, in the summer of 2020 following, uh, you know, kind of the uprising and protests following George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's murders along with uh, Ahmaud Arbery and the countless other people. Um, But I think like at that time, we felt like the school as a whole wasn't doing enough to address um, the ongoing problem of uh, police brutality. And they didn't do enough in our books to kind of show that they were supporting their black students in general. Um, And seeing as though we felt like our position as black student athletes put us in even more of a minority position because we make up even less of a population in in the student athlete population. Um, we felt like it was important for us to make sure that we were being taken care of and we were being heard within that specific uh, department. So uh, we organized and helped and the um, staff organized a meeting with all the staff and all the black student athletes. And basically, we just kind of told them our experiences within the athletic department that were negative along the basis of race to kind of make them aware of the fact that like, you all aren't exonerated from this issue either. Like, this is things that we have to deal with at this school in general, but also within this athletic department. And making them them aware of that, I think, allowed us to create the space where we could create our own, own organization. And the goal of the BSAA really is to create, like, a family atmosphere where Black students can come in. And students, regardless of, like, minority students in general, any student, but... Um, well, specifically black students at that moment to come in and feel like they had a family they could call to and people they uh, could support, and but also like we're creating a direct connection with athletic athletic department. So when there's a problem, we can directly address it, and we can start to create codes of conduct and actual consequences for racialized um, like negative behavior and stuff like that. So um, there's more I can add to it as we go along, but that's kind of like the initial thing I think about the BSA
2: okay so how many members like right now is in uh
3: so we have about i would say outside of the um outside of the uh, uh the uh, board members we have about half of the um 40 black student athletes who are actively participating in like our meetings and stuff um but so far it's really been led by the um the uh the um board members and stuff um and that's, that's kind of how it's And We're trying to get more and more people involved. But since we're new, it's kind of hard because people got to balance their life right. stuff with what we're trying to do, too. So. Okay. Gotcha. And you mentioned that
1: the, the staff is not exonerated. Mm-hmm. What has been the staff response to your organizing?
3: I think it's been pretty good. Um, my coach specifically, long before we even had this forum, like he was like kind of trying to reach out to us as the black students on the team And be like, you know, I want to make sure that we're having the proper conversations and and, um, I guess like doing the right work um, as a team to make sure that not only do you all feel like we're addressing your problems and what you're dealing with, but also like to go forward and spread it to the rest of the athletic department. And I think like all the coaches have been doing a relatively good job It's just that for some coaches who don't have any black student athletes on their team, it might feel less of a like personal obligation because like. They just aren't any. There aren't any black people they have to see on their team. They're like, okay, this is some person that I have a responsibility to. Right. That doesn't mean they're putting. They're not putting in the work. It just might be less personal or personalized to them, which is uh, which shouldn't matter. But you know, it does. Um, so, but I think it's been relatively uh, good. I think we're trying to get more involvement though out of everyone in the stuff that we've been trying to do.
2: Okay, since you said like you guys have forty and like. You guys have started at the senior, so mm. y'all are seniors now. Mm-hmm. So, what's the plan for the BSAA after you guys leave? Right. You think it's still gonna keep going, right. or it's gonna stop?
3: Yeah, actually, that's been like a, a a crucial conversation I've been having with my roommate Ethan, who's also the co-director for community outreach. Because that's my position. I'm I'm uh, one of the directors for community outreach, um, and uh, it's um, been an interesting conversation because we we're worried. For a little bit that after we leave, just because not everyone in not everyone seems as involved in what we're trying to do or invested in it, we were worried that it might dissipate after we leave. Um, but we've brought on some new members and people are starting to show more interest, so we're hopeful that it will continue. Um, but kind of one of the things that we were uh, planning to do with the BSAA is not have to be a moment. I feel like when you look at all of these social justice movements, especially those who fo- like following um, like pr- police brutality cases. It's like this like maybe like one month or two month period where everyone's like, oh, yeah, we have to address this. And then after that, it goes away because, one, for a lot of people who are involved in it, it's not personalized to them. And two, they feel like life catches up with them and they have all this other stuff that is more important than the issues that the group is dealing with or the issues that the group that they're not affiliated with. Um, because, you know, we have a huge issue with what it means to be an ally and people misunderstand what that means, I think. And what actually goes into being an ally? So that two month period is where they can say, "Oh, I was an ally at this period," but then they can go back to living their life. And we don't want that to be the thing with the BSA. We want it to be where the athletic department and everyone involved keeps going after after we're gone, because we're the ones who are leading it right now. But we're the ones bringing energy. But we need to make sure that it, you know, it continues after we're done. So
0: great, great, great. Yeah. Now you mentioned something very, um, very interesting. You, you you basically spoke on how, and in many cases activism is very temporary. Mm. Um, change doesn't come, you know, in, in, in temporary work. Mm. You know, it's, it's always a, a on forth um, participation as well as an effort. Mm. Um, what do people, you know, who participate in the BSAA actually do? Like, what 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 actions are, are put right. forth? You know, to basically. You know, initiate these, right. uh, these changes.
3: Right. So I would say for the president and the uh, vice president, they're the ones who kind of act like as the main liaisons between um, the our organization and the athletic department. That the parliament. We also have a parliamentarian who and the secretary, and they also kind of uh, help with that too. Um, and they're the kind of main ones who are making sure that the athletic department is up to date with what we're doing. And when me and my uh, my uh, roommate, Ethan, come up with um, events and stuff that they know and they can spread it because we have three advisors who are staff members on our um, on, in our group that kind of relay those messages. And he helps. And we have uh, Al Latell is um, one of them. And he helps uh, relay like the emails and stuff to the staff. And he also kind of helps us spearhead stuff. So that's kind of um, what uh, people outside of myself and my uh, my uh, roommate do. But my, myself and my roommate, we've done a lot of, I think, like the hands-on stuff, things that people have been getting involved in. Um, so far, because of COVID, you know, it wasn't really possible to get people in person. So what we focused really on were discussions um, surrounding certain issues regarding race and regarding even what it what it's like to live in Baltimore specifically, um, just to bring awareness. Because another thing I forgot to mention earlier was the BSA is not only about working on black issues within the campus, but also those outside the campus because we can recognize that Hopkins has a whole history of mistreatment specifically regarding black Baltimore and if you are coming in as a black person onto campus and a person on campus in general you have to recognize that history and you also have a role in working to re- reshape that history and actually build that bridge so for me obviously it's more personal because I'm from here and the stuff that they do directly impacts my life because people who aren't from Baltimore, they can just go and leave and it won't really impact them. But like for me, it, it has an actual like impact. So um, that's another thing the BSA wants to do is recreate that bridge and actually build community connections and actually create change on the basis of what the community says it needs, not what we say the community needs. Because Hopkins does have a tendency to say, the community needs this, we'll do this, and they have to deal with it. Whereas it should be the community tells you what they need. You give them the resources and they... Uh, have the ability to do it themselves, and you help them in whatever way you can. So that's kind of how we see it. Um, but yeah, we uh, organize lots of community events and discussions. The main discussions the past fall semester were on police and prisons, housing and homelessness, and then racism and medicine. And all of those are based in Baltimore, so we kind of talked about how all those kind of issues relate to Baltimore. And then um, in the spring, we had a discussion on uh, the movie um, Documentary. Is called, it's called. It's called Charm City. Not the same thing as Charm City Kings. Uh, it's Charm City is actually doc, actual doc, doc, documentary um, about uh, kind of uh, the Royal Street Community Center and the work that um, Alex and and Mr. C were doing um, and kind of uh, trying to reduce violence in that area. But then also how that dynamic interacted with what police were doing um, in Baltimore in general and. How that impacts um, the lives of everyone in the city. So, that was um, kind of another discussion that we had that I think was important because a lot of people are unaware of what gun violence actually entails and the impact that it has. It's very sensationalized in the media and it's very depersonalized to a lot of people who go to Hopkins, I think. So, that was another big thing. All
2: right, I feel you about that. Thank you so much for that about the BSAA. All right, so now let's talk about you. Like, mm-hmm. what are some things that you do around, like, in your, like, community in Johns Hopkins hmm. and, like, your workflow because I know that you're a student and hmm. it gets hard sometimes. So what, what's some things that you do?
3: In terms of, like, uh, in terms of what?
2: In terms of, like, just, just your daily living. Basically. Oh, okay. Uh,
3: I mean, like, you know, I got basketball stuff, so basketball is, like, a huge part of what I'm doing every day, working out and stuff like that. Um, then I have my schoolwork. Um, but I think, like, As it relates to what I'm trying to do with the BSA and in general, I kind of try to talk to people and kind of try to have them or help them figure out ways that they can incorporate uh, social justice stuff into their life. Because I think, like, at this point, it's beyond our capacity to assume that we don't have a responsibility to actually be involved in creating change. I think that everyone, regardless of their profession, has the ability to do something when it comes to creating change in your community or creating change, like at any level. So if you can find a way to structure your job and what you're doing in your job, whether you're a student or whether you're working, like wherever you're working at, um, you can, I think, find ways to make sure that you take something from that and create change. And that's kind of like, the, I try to have conversations with people around that stuff. Um, and it's hard because not everyone sees it that way. It's very easy to be like, well, you know, I have all this stuff going on. How could I possibly help anyone else when I can't even help myself in this moment? And that is very. That's a very valid thing to do because a lot of us aren't don't have the privilege to be able to start working on other people before we can work on ourselves. But if you do find that you have the ability to, I do think it is your responsibility uh, to do that because there are a lot of people who are less disadvantaged than yourself. Um, so I think that's like another thing. And one of the
1: things you you mentioned along those lines were the kind of temporal nature of mm-hmm. being involved, mm-hmm. and I think that's related to like what it means to be an ally, mm. and kind of maybe the somewhat misguided right. uh, thoughts about what it, what allyship is. So, um, what do you
3: think it means to be an ally? Mm. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Right. Uh, I mean, I might have more like of a radicalist kind of view of it, but I think like if you're going off the basis of what ally means when it comes to, like when they use it like in war or whatever, an ally means that you've aligned yourself with the side and you're willing to take the losses to achieve what you plan to achieve. And I think that can be applied to social justice and especially when it comes to race, is that a lot of times you see that people will claim allyship, but they also aren't ready to take the losses um, with what comes with being an ally. That could mean that you no longer, you sever ties with family members, you sever ties with, with friend, friends that you thought had the same ideas as you, but you found out that they posted uh, a post with like five n-, n words all over it and now you are questioning whether or not you can be their friend but you're not able to do that because oh but that's my friend though like they wouldn't they wouldn't ever do that you know what, you know what i mean so uh i think if you're unable to do something as basic as that you can't call yourself an ally because allyship entails actual work like people think that putting up a post on instagram in support of someone else is the bare is like okay i'm an ally because i let my followers know that this is happening or this is what i think and stuff but that's, that's, like, that's not even allyship. That's just putting an Instagram post up. Right. So you actually have to go out and do the work. and You have to use your privilege. Like A lot of times of, when you saw those videos of uh, white protesters, they were able to do things that black protesters wouldn't do or they couldn't do because the police would have arrested them in that moment. They can get up in the officer's face and they can let them know how they feel. If a black protester does that, they're going to get arrested. They could get beat and whatever could happen to them and i think like it's being able to recognize your privilege and use it in a way that actually creates change and like kind of accepting that so that's kind of how i saw got gotcha. you so you're saying that the bumper sticker on my car isn't quite enough i think it's a, i think it's a statement i think like i think the the work behind it is what's more important in my opinion i think like being able to 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 accept what comes with that is most important because a lot of times people who are disadvantaged don't have a choice like we don't have a choice in the losses that we take but those who are allies do, so right. they have to choose to do that. Yeah, yeah, I think about that
1: a lot. Um, and I think you mentioned, like, when you were initially beginning, kind of coming up with um, some things that you thought the school could do. Hmm. So Did you have, like, a list
3: of demands that you presented to some of the academic leadership that Hopkins? Um, I think we kind of let them know, like, on social media. I think one of the huge focal points right now is is obviously the police force it's a huge point of contention for a lot of us, especially those who are from Baltimore because, and those, I I think anyone who actually actively studies like critical race theory and, and the history of policing in its current like form understands that police are not effective in what they claim to be doing um, when it comes to disrupting crime and, and crime prevention. Um, And uh, for, For Hopkins, I think, to claim that that they have to, one, to instate police um, to reduce crime is a fallacy because evidence obviously shows that that is not completely true. And two, I think um, it disadvantages and endangers the black students on campus and minority students in general on campus given the history of policing because it's not like they're going to reframe it and restructure it um, in the way that it needs to be because if you're still operating... In a structure that involves policing, it's going to be inherently flawed because it incorporates the systems that produce like those kind of behaviors that disadvantage people. So that's like another thing I think. Right. And have you guys had conversations about alternatives to policing? Like, uh, I think like that's the next step for us is that um, where we have people like myself and my roommate Ethan who actually do a lot of work uh, on uh, police reform and abolition. Um, but not everyone obviously has like the um, experience doing that. So I think it's kind of creating a collective where we all kind of get to that point and then we can properly address it um, within what we're trying to do. But right now, obviously that's a little tricky because we're a a Hopkins organization. Right. I'm not really sure how that works when it comes to addressing those type of things, but at least when it comes to my personal opinion, I am against it. And if there is a, if there's a capacity to which we can address it, within the organization, that would be great, but I'll continue to do what I want to do outside of the organization in my capacity to demonstrate and kind of prevent that from happening if, if, if possible, so. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha.
0: Now, like you mentioned, um, you're a senior, you're mm. about to graduate mm. um, as a student athlete um, from one of the most prestigious schools really in the country. Mm. Um, what, what are your goals, you know, after you graduate what do you plan to do hmm. in your profession um, just the things you're going to do even out of, outside of your profession just as a you know regular human being right you know, says?
3: right um, well I think like the first thing is uh, once I graduate I'll probably I'm look for grad like a grad school so I can go get my doctorate in psychology um, in, in clinical psychology because I want to work with um, eventually with inner city kids who are uh, like struggling with um, Trauma and like stressor related disorders and like other types of like mood disorders. Because I think sometimes that can be the root cause of like some of the problems that we see in our community is like a lack of mental health access to mental health, and also like kind of like addressing the fact that we live in environments that reproduce trauma and reproduce like mental health problems. Um, and like without properly addressing them and actually addressing the systems that prevent people from getting that access then um that's kind of like where the issue arises in my opinion so that's what I want to do is like try to create that change and provide affordable services to people who don't have the money to pay for regular mental health services cuz mental health is obviously really expensive so i want to be able to get to the financial position where i don't have to worry about my salary while also providing people who need the services the services because i think that's the one of the first steps to actually create a change um and that's kind of like my main thing in life is to do that through psychology, to create change through psychology. But then also in general, just like you know, do what I need to do for my parents. You know, pay them back for everything that they've done, like sacrifices. Like I think everyone who who has a who feels like they have a um, a debt that to their parents or the people who they feel like help them get to the point where they're at. I think that's like a life thing that most people have is being able to repay them. So, got
1: you. And you uh, you mentioned. Financial barriers to mm. mental health access. Mm. Um, are there other barriers to using mental health mm. services and counseling services? Um, is there stigmas, or, or mm. you know, I guess maybe the most direct question is: Would the Black community use those counseling mm. services use uh, use those services even if there weren't financial right. barriers? Right.
3: Well, I definitely think there is a stigma. I definitely, but I think like the stigma is a result of of what is needed for survival, you know? Like, if we're living in a society that requires us to be strong given our position, then acknowledging that you're weak could be a a drawback. So
1: you mentioned uh, the financial barriers to mental health services, Hmm. Um, and the question is, are there other barriers to using mental health services counseling therapy especially in the black community like if there even wasn't financial barriers would people use those services mm-hmm.
3: yeah I, I think like i think that some people would i think that we're starting to gain more acceptance of people um and acknowledgement of the fact that a lot of people are dealing with um mental health problems and i think it's becoming more normalized to be able to address it but i do think there's like a still a huge stigma Uh, against like talking about it, at least openly, and acknowledging the fact that lots of us have um, either generational trauma that has been passed on, um, but also like just acknowledging that the environments that we're in produce trauma and produce mental health problems. Um, And I think like a part of it is because, you know, our survival is contingent on us being strong and mental health can serve as a main weakness. So potentially acknowledging that could be um, either seen as weakness or uh, could be um, detrimental to whatever we're trying to do, whatever we're trying to survive. So, I mean, I don't necessarily know if that's always the reason, but I think that could be one of the reasons, but it's definitely just an overall stigma against addressing it. Um, but also just, we don't teach enough in general, in schools and everything about mental health for people that I think to have that level of understanding to understand, oh, this is something I need to address because it could have these impacts on my life going forward. So that's um, what I think, it, it, what, what could happen. Um. Even if it were free, or if it were very reduced, like people might not right. use them just because there is a uh, not as much knowledge about it, and it's not that people don't have the capacity. It's just like w- we, as a, as a system and as a country, don't give people the resources and the knowledge to be able to access those things. So right. that's that's kind of how I see. Do so you think maybe just uh, even early education about like what it is? Yeah, about. I think it, I think it's that's what that's what this is all about. Is like at this point, all of us that are grown, we've grown up in and in, in a culture of like either racism is, is normalized, uh, homophobia and all this stuff is normalized, and then prejudice in general is normalized. We don't talk about mental health. So it starts with the kids. That's why decisions like down in Georgia to ban critical race theory from teaching in class is a huge issue because now you're creating a whole another generation of kids in a state who are not going to have the knowledge to be, actually be able to help their peers, and all those black kids are going to be isolated in what they're dealing with because no one around them has an understanding of what it means to be black what it means to be a minority in this country and all that stuff so that's like I think the kids are, are where we have to focus everything in at this point because we're all old and we're, we have the capacity to learn but some people are so entrenched in what they've grown up in that right. it's hard for them to break away from that. Sure. So
1: yeah, My only pushback to that would be you know, if you've got a five year old who needs counseling services mm-hmm. they only have so much um, um, agency out the right parents, you know right. Like if dad or mom exactly. is carrying exactly. that stigma right exactly
3: exactly and that's yeah. that's like the another thing is like if you can reach the parents to a certain extent then then in the only problem is sometimes families are broken apart because the system recognizes the state or whatever recognizes this kid needs help the parents don't have necessarily the knowledge of the capacity to be like oh i i can give my kids the service I can get them access to it and now, instead of helping people, we're breaking families apart because right. we're saying we're trying to help them when we're actually not in the end, You know what I mean?
2: Right. That's a great point. So I heard you, I said, I heard you talking about mental health and things like that. What mm-hmm. are some things that you're working towards uh, building mental health and also trying to build mental health within youth?
3: Mm-hmm. I think like once I get my doctorate and once I have a few years of experience, I want to do a private practice type of thing. Mm. Um, and I think I would want to run my private practice where it is affordable to people, and then eventually, like, kind of try to connect with, um, like community centers and like recreation centers and build networks within that. So I, because I think like right now, as it is, recreation centers obviously are extremely underfunded. But I think one way to create funding for them would be through mental health. Is saying like, okay, not only is this going to be a place where the kids can come and play basketball, they can learn art, they can do all these things. But then we also place they can go to and they can have someone that they can talk to outside of their family, someone they can talk to about what's going on in the neighborhood, what's going on at home. And that way you start to create that normalization and actually the access to stuff when they're young. So then when they're older, they can be that parent or that person who can be that support system for the next person in the right way um, and help them go to the same kind of thing. And that's kind of how I envision it. You know, it might be a hopeful thing. I think I'm a, I'm a hopeful person. I, I definitely recognize, like, the barriers that life presents. But I think if we don't, like, dream big or, like, kind of have these ideas, then we kind of, and are complacent, then we can't complain about how life is because we haven't done anything to try to change it. So that's how I see it.
0: Now, um, before we let you go, Diego, Mm. Uh, at mission fit we have a tradition mm. of acknowledging a uh, gratitude mm. and a strength um do you have any any issues like
3: to acknowledge today uh yeah i mean my gra- gratitude is probably just being here with y'all it's been a long time since i think we were able to sit down and have a conversation um and you know just there's not really much of a difference in age between us so being able to have these conversations i think with people at our age is important because a lot of us i think are scared or uh, aren't used to having these types of discussions and stuff Agreed. so I think that's that's a gratitude and I think a strength is just uh, I think that's also the strength is just being able to sit down and have these conversations because not everyone can do it and not everyone can uh, can focus in I think and and look deep and actually kind of look for those answers and stuff so that's 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 my strength and gratitude for today all
2: right so talking back on strength mm-hmm. what does strength mean to you?
3: Uh, that's a great question. Let me think. Um, I think that strength is the capacity, uh, to persevere and, and kind of find a way in yourself to achieve what you want. And that, that's, that's why I think strength obviously, obviously has a, um, athletic connotation usually, but I think strength can be applied to anything that you do in life that requires hard work. And I think the capacity to push through the obstacles is what strength is like. Perseverance is another synonym. So
2: Okay, thank you. So uh, we had you answer the gratitude, so now it's time for us to answer the gratitude as well. My gratitude for today is actually just being here, sitting here with these nice gentlemen here today and also talking with Diego himself.
1: Wes? Yeah, for me, same. Um, My conversations with Diego have been far, far ranging. Um, I don't know if we even mentioned that Diego was an intern here with Mission Fit for a few months of the, the winter and uh, spring. Um, and I've really looked to Diego for answers um, and helped me uh, provide personal and organizational direction a couple times during that point. Uh, and it's been awesome to lean on you and awesome to finally sit down and actually have this conversation as well.
0: Yeah, um, just picking up on West Side. Um, I would say personally my gratitude was uh, just basically open up dialogue um, about um, several topics that are important in our community. Um, several topics that I feel like we should, you know, talk about on a daily basis because they're always changing, they're always, you know, um, being formed in different ways and everybody has a different opinion about these topics that we speak about. But um, I just appreciate the fact that we, like you said, um, you know, have the um, I'm trying to describe it. Um, have the strength Mm. Of just you know talking about it and, and and being and being in that that um that position whereas those are as vulnerable, mm. you know and you you open up to someone. um I appreciate that, and I'm definitely grateful for that.
2: All right, y'all. so that's the end of
3: our podcast for today. Hope you guys stick around for the next one. Bye.